Hi, my name is Naomi. The Old Testament reading is found in Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither no poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Martha. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 4, 11 through 14. I'm not saying this because I need anything, for I have learned how to be content in any circumstance. I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. I have learned the secret to being content in any and every circumstance, whether full or hungry, or whether having plenty or being poor. I can endure all these things through the power of the one who gives me strength. Still, you have done well to share my distress. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is David. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us for the ways that we have wronged you, just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. And don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be Amen. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Uh, we thank you for your generosity. We thank you for the way that you not only give every good and perfect gift, but you've given us your Son. Jesus, thank you that you've laid down your life for us that we might be saved. Thank you, Holy Spirit. You are the Lord, the giver of life. So come now, breathe on our hearts, breathe on our hearts and our minds, even as we hear your word. In Christ's name we pray. Everybody said, Amen, Amen, Amen. amen. You may be seated. Yes. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Black Friday week. <laughs> According to the emails in my inbox already, that's what this is now becoming. The irony of it being Thanksgiving week whilst also conjuring up new things that we need uh, is not lost on most of us. And yet, it does raise in our minds a question of how are Christians supposed to think about things? How are we to relate to material possessions and creaturely comforts? We've been in this series called Complete Joy, and this is a series that's been, through the, been going through a letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians in Philippi. And Paul was uh, the most significant church planter at the beginning of uh, these followers of Jesus who began to say, listen, if God has raised this Jesus from the dead, what does this mean about who he is and what does this mean about who we are? And so uh, Paul was one of the leading voices who began to have revelation from God and understand how this was the culmination of a long story of God at work in the world through Israel and his people and now this Messiah had come. And Acts 16 tells us the story of Paul beginning this church here in Philippi and 
And so Paul's giving us a clue about how the Christian relates to the world around him, specifically to material possessions and creaturely comforts. And if you think about it, when Paul, when the church in Philippi began, it began because Paul was in prison and then was rescued from prison and he was freed and these people came to believe, the jailer and his household came to believe. But now Paul's writing from another prison, maybe in Ephesus, maybe in Rome. And you get the sense that Paul is saying, look, it's really not about being free from your literal prisons. It's about connecting to the source of joy. And so as we look at the sermon today, this is actually the, the secrets of being content. This is the wrap-up of our series in Philippians. And we begin with that question, how do we relate to material things and creature comforts? How do we relate to them? Now, if you look just kind of if we were to list different approaches by observing the world around us, we'd come up with a handful of maybe different ways that we see as evident around us. One maybe is that we would say, well, the way to relate to this, the creature comforts and material things is just indulgence. Just go for it. This is Parks and Rec, the character Tom Haverford. This is treat yourself, you know. Like, just go for it. Like, it doesn't matter. Life is hard. So when you have the opportunity to do something that makes you feel better, just go ahead and treat yourself. And so we have people kind of saying, like, I need to go shopping. It's my self-care. And, and I don't know. Maybe it is. And I don't want to judge. Maybe that is for you. But, but is this the sum total of our paradigm of how to relate to the material world, to possessions and things and comforts. I saw a commercial recently of a financial brokerage, a firm that began by showing us dogs being pampered in purses and with sweaters and different, you know, whatever. And then it said this punchline of the commercial was, there are dogs living better than you, you know. <laughs> and then it was, therefore, trade with this online independent brokerage training thing, tra trading uh, platform. And I thought, wow, that's the hook, like, that we're going to be jealous of dogs uh, so that we can now indulge in whatever pampering we need. And so some of we recognize, like, okay, that's a bit extreme. And so we swing to this other mode. What we see around us is to deprive, to say maybe the way we, re we relate to material, com material things and creature comforts is to actually deprive ourselves. And so you have maybe the, the, the picture of quote-unquote holy people throughout human history. And maybe you think of a person like Gandhi, and you're like, well, didn't Gandhi go in these long fasts? Yes, I mean, more accurately, they were temper tantrums to communicate to the British. But, you know, we'll just let that go. But there's this sense in which you could say, look, if you could just deprive yourself, then maybe you can coerce God or some other power to give you what you want. And you're like, well, we don't really see that in our day, do we? Oh, yeah, sure. How about the other commercials that are really popular this time of year? The weight loss kinds. I saw one for a certain exercise bike, and it's like the dad is sneaking awake Christmas morning, and he's going down there to get an hour ride in on his exercise bike with a miraculously beautiful view outside the window. You know? And I'm thinking, 
The world is lovely today. Your kids are asleep. It's Christmas morning, and you're sweating. <laughs> and there's this sense in which, no, we don't want to indulge. Instead, we're going to deprive. And the way we relate to comfort is by being extreme in our discomfort. And the way that we will deprive ourselves of satisfaction. No, I won't eat that pumpkin pie. I say go ahead and eat that pumpkin pie. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Now you say, okay, so, so it's not indulgence and it's not deprivation. It's neither Tom Haverford nor Gandhi. Who, well, maybe there's another approach. And maybe the third approach is that Netflix special that took the world by storm, tidying up with Marie Kondo. <laughs> and so we think the third method here is to simplify and to say, I got too much stuff. Do I really need this? Does this spark joy? Doesn't spark joy? Let's just go ahead. And if it does spark joy, go ahead and thank the house because the house gave you joy somehow. Look, there's nothing wrong with simplifying. And no doubt, probably all of us could use a bit of simplifying. There, it's, it's, it's a good practice probably for most of us to go through and purge and think, do I really need this? How much excess stuff and all of that. But is simplifying the, the ruling principle? is simplifying the kind of governing paradigm for how to relate to the material world. Not necessarily. And so what about a fourth method? This one comes closer to the world of the text, and it is the idea of detachment. Now, this notion probably in its origins comes from the East and a sort of Buddhist detachment from the world to say, neither the pleasures nor the pain of life will really move me. I'm unmoved by this stuff. But there was also in the, in the first century and actually earlier than that, a group of Greek philosophers that went by the name of Stoic. And the Stoics practiced a kind of disciplined sense of I can work through this stuff in life because the material world doesn't really have any bearing on me. Now in America today, we have our own strange confluence of a kind of westernized Buddhism and a modernized or postmodernized Stoicism. And somehow these two things mix together and you have people saying things like, I need to find peace within myself. And if I can just solidly center on my enoughness, then I'm going to be okay. And so whether I have this or whether I have that really is irrelevant because I have me. And in me, I am enough and I am good enough, strong enough, competent enough, whatever the case might be, and therefore I can make it. When you turn to the text in Philippians 4, what seems to be a little bit curious is that Paul is using language from the Stoics. He's using actual phrases from Stoic philosophy. And so in verse 11, he says, I'm not saying this because I need anything, for I have learned how to be content in any circumstance. That word, content. And then he says, I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. I've learned the secret to being content, he says again, in any and every circumstance, whether full or hungry, whether having plenty or being poor. What does this word contentment mean? Strictly speaking, just in a general sense, a, gen a generic kind of meaning of this word, the word contentment points to a kind of self-sufficiency. And so we might say contentment is believing 
that you have everything you need. Stoic philosophers and teachers in Paul's day used this word to refer to a few things. Let me just list them out for you. Stoics used this word for contentment to refer to an independent spirit or a free outlook on life that characterized a wise person. They also used it to describe the person who through discipline had become independent of external circumstances. They didn't need external and who had discovered personal resources that were more than adequate for any situation that might arise. The Stoic was the person who had disciplined themselves to be independent of other circumstances and had discovered within themselves the resources that said, I'm fine. I don't need this. I don't need that. I'm good. I've made it. The, Stoic taught, the Stoics taught the doctrine that a, a person should be sufficient unto himself for all things. Contentment in the Greco-Roman mind of Paul's day was to be self-sufficient. This is not unlike what we hear in the world around us today. When people say, well, you're fine, you got it, you, you're enough, you can do it. There's a kind of contentment or settledness or peace that actually comes from yourself. And it sounds empowering. And it sounds elevating. Except that all we've done is just put a heavy yoke on you. Let me explain to you how this works. Religion, one way of understanding religion, is a system of belief that teaches you how to manage guilt, that, that gives you an arbitrary standard for measuring your sense of enoughness and everyone else's. So if your religion is working out, that religious system works like this. The more I work out, the better I feel about myself and the easier it is to point the finger at other people who don't. So it's your own system of ma guilt management. So you say, ooh, I'm going to be bad on Thanksgiving Day and I'm going to eat a whole bunch of desserts, but then I'll be good the next morning and work out. It's interesting that we use moral language to talk about working out or eating because it is, it works like a kind of religious system, good versus bad, our system of measuring enoughness. But the problem with it is at the end of the day, who's responsible for your own feeling of goodness? You. And what if you fail? And you will. Who will then save you? In other words, all of these other systems that work like, like religions have all of the systems and standards, but no savior, no salvation. So you'll hear people say, look, I know I can make it through life because I am enough. I appreciate the sentiment. I think it, it is meant to be an empowering statement that you don't need to be codependent, you don't need to have, I, I get, and the, there is a sense in which that's a healthy confession to say, I, I'm, I'm enough. But the Christian doesn't say, I am enough because I am me. The Christian says, I am enough because Christ is in me. And this is where we're about to head in the text. Paul, does, Paul uses Stoic language while undermining Stoic philosophy. Paul uses the language of self-sufficiency to actually point to not self-sufficiency, but something beyond and outside himself. And so in verse 13, Paul says, I can endure all these things, the hunger or the lack or the having plenty or not having enough. Why? Because I can do this through the power of the one who gives me strength. 
In a way, Paul is playing with words a little bit to say, I have learned the secret to self-sufficiency is really in the all-sufficiency of the one who lives in me. And you're like, Paul, that's not really self-sufficiency. He's like, exactly. <laughs> that's what I'm trying. This is what he's trying to do. He's saying, I'll take your language of contentment and self-sufficiency and show you that it's actually through the power of the one who gives me strength. One of the beautiful things about a Christian vision of contentment is that it doesn't place the heavy burden on ourselves to say, you be enough. Because what if your mantra is, I am enough? Every day you've got to wake up and prove your enoughness. You've got to be up for the task. You've got to not be taken down by the stresses and anxieties of the day. And you say, oh, I've got to prove my enoughness. I've got to demonstrate my enoughness. But the Christian version of contentment says, you are enough because Christ is enough and Christ is in you. And so each day the goal is not to prove your own enoughness, but the goal is to stay in Christ. Christ will be your strength. Not only does the Christian vision of contentment open us up vertically to the Christ who strengthens us, but it actually opens us up horizontally to others. So maybe some of you in the room today, you're like, no, I would never say that I have got it in myself, that I'm self-sufficient. I'd never really say that. Okay. But probably what many of us would say is, but with me and Jesus got it figured out and I don't need anyone else. Notice verse 14, Paul says, still you have done well to share in my distress. This is Paul's way of saying, but don't think that I'm saying that I don't need you. Your gift mattered to me. Remember how many times in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he's thanked them for sharing in his work. He's like, look, you're my companions. You're my partakers of the gospel. You've brought me joy. Your fellowship is a source of joy to me, Paul says, is a, is a carrier of joy. Over and over again, Paul points to these relationships as a way of saying, look, God has used you to provide for me. So we don't want the, the illusion of a Christian is a person who doesn't need any friends. I don't join small group. I don't go to anything else because I've got Jesus, brother. Maybe you weaklings need to go find community. Me, I've got Jesus. Like, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that in Christ, we also have a community, have a people. And he, later on in this chapter, he'll say, look, and I'm praying that God will supply all of your needs. In other words, God's the source, God's the provider, but he's going to use one another. So what is contentment for a Christian? Contentment for a Christian is believing that you have everything you need, not full stop, but because you have Jesus. Contentment for the Christian is believing that you have everything you need because, why? Because you have Jesus, and in Jesus, you also have the family of God, the community of the people of God. So I want to say a few things that Paul actually works out throughout this letter about what it means to really have Jesus and why it is that when we have Jesus, we truly have everything. Eugene Peterson went to be with the Lord about a year ago. He was the pastor and scholar who translated the paraphrase we call the Message Bible. But Eugene is probably, to me, more and uh, has a special place, not just because of the message, but because of his books that he wrote on pastoral ministry. And those are, to me, just great treasures and 
having been able to spend a few days in his home with he and his wife Jan, was one of the great privileges and joys to see this, this couple and these people who had given their lives to serve the church. In one of his books, Peterson talks about the experience of going to a Benedictine monastery for the first time. And uh, he was determined to kind of have this retreat experience. And so he arrives at the Benedictine monastery and the abbots of the monastery, whatever it says, a welcome. We're so glad you're here. We Benedictines have a long history of hospitality. And so everything, all of, all of your needs will be taken care of here at the monastery. It's our pleasure to serve you. And then the abbot said, and if you find that there's something that you need that, that isn't here, come and talk to one of the brothers and they will teach you to live without it. And Eugene said this became his philosophy for pastoral ministry. You know, he welcomed new families. We're so glad you're joining the church. We just want you to be part of the family of God here. And by the way, if you find that there's a program or event or something that you need that we don't have, come and talk to us. We'll help you live without it. <laughs> Flies in the face of our modern-day assumptions that what we need is more busyness, more programs, more events, more stuff. If we only had this, then we would be. And the Benedictine way points us to say this truth that Paul is pointing to. Do you believe at your core that if you have Jesus, you have everything you need? Do you believe at your core that if you have Jesus, you have everything you need? Now, I don't think this is meant to be a cheap answer. And so I want to flesh out a little bit more of what it means to say that we have everything we need because of Jesus. I want to say three things about it. The first is this. We have everything we need because of Christ's presence. Early in his letter, Paul says in chapter 1, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's saying, look, I figured it out. One time I was freed from prison, but now in this moment I may not. And so whether I live, Christ is with me. And if I die, I am with Christ. In other words, if Christ is with me, I cannot lose. I want to believe this deeply in my heart. I want to believe that Christ's presence with me on the mountaintop or in the valley, on the good days or in the bad days, in life and in death, is the key through all of this. I was reading recently the stories of Christians as they began to face persecution in the second century. Christians who would be brought into the arena with the gladiators and they would go to their death with incredible courage and dignity, confidence. And these Romans would make fun of them. They were like, well, you can't do that. Like, you're not a noble person. Like, if you were a noble person that somehow, you know, society turned against you, you, you can die with a nobility to your death because, yeah, you, you're noble in your convictions. If you were a philosopher whose philosophy became a bit passé and everyone said, oh, let's kill that false teacher, there were many stories of heroic Greek martyrs, in other words. But these Romans looked at the Christians and they're like, you guys are peasants. Like, you're the poorest of the poor. You function on the same strata as slaves. You don't have a right to act dignified in your death. And these Christians said, let me tell you why we are not only dignified but joyful in death. Because in death we have been united with Christ. United with Christ. These Christians believed that their bodies, when Paul said, know you not that your bodies are members of Christ, these Christians really believed it. And they said, we are, in fact, members of Christ. And in fact, they said, if the Son of God himself suffered and died, 
then even in our suffering and death, we are still with Jesus. See, some of us have come up with the conclusion that because Jesus suffered and died, you don't have to. Maybe you've heard preachers preach something like that. Jesus died on a cross so you can just be healthy and rich. But the gospel that Paul preached was not that because Jesus suffered and died, you don't have to. The gospel that Paul preached was because Jesus suffered and died. Even when you suffer and even when you die, you will still be with Jesus. You are still united. There is no depths that you can go to. There is no heights that you can ascend to. There is neither life nor death nor past nor future that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so for the Christian, dignity in dying is not because we were able to eliminate the pain or because we were able to have all these people around us or we were able to dictate all this stuff. For the Christian, even in death, the hope that comes with us is that Christ's presence unites us. There's no experience of life that can take you out of Christ's presence. The second thing that Paul wants us to know through this letter is we have everything we need because of Christ's power, because of his actual power. Therefore, God has exalted him, he says in Philippians 2. He starts if you think about the hymn that he quotes in Philippians 2, 9 and 11, he says, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And we're like, oh, that's awesome. Jesus, you're so high above. You're so exalted. You're so powerful. Oh, what a wonderful name. Oh, what a powerful name. Oh, Jesus, you're the name above all names. Two verses later. Two verses later, Paul says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The same Jesus that is exalted above every name is the same Jesus that is at work in you. This is why Paul says, I can endure all things. This is not about the eye black for football players putting Philippians 4.13 there. I can throw a bunch of touchdowns. No, that's not what it's saying. I can do all things is not, I'm always going to have victory. I can do all things is Paul saying, no matter what situation I find myself in, even when I am powerless, the most powerful name above all names is still at work in me. That's what Paul's saying. Don't cheapen Philippians 4.13 into a slogan for your perpetual victory. Understand that this is not strength to avoid a cross, but strength to endure one. This is the power of Christ in us. That's why I think it's, it's really important as Christians that we don't embrace mantras that put the power back on us. I can do it. I am a, it's not I can do all things, period. It's I can, do, I can endure all these things through Christ who strengthens me. And then thirdly, we have everything we need because of Christ's promise. Paul begins his letter talking to the Philippians about how much joy they bring him. And then in verse 6 he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Paul wants, before he gives them any pastoral words, before he gives them any exhortation about how to live, he says, look, I just want you to be, I, I'm confident. I know the God who started this work in you. The same creator is the redeemer. This is the promise we have. And then he picks this up at the end of Philippians 3. 
He says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. Transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The promise of this verse is that one day God will do these things. You know, if you've ever wondered what it is that makes you sort of wish the prosperity preachers were right. <laughs> and you're like, oh man, it does sound so awesome though to be healed and to not be in suffering and to not have lack. Like that, that does sound like a really nice God. I think what the prosperity preachers get close to right, if not right, is the desire of God for us. That God's goodness does desire us to be well. It doesn't it is not a Christian vision of God to say, well, I don't know, maybe God thinks cancer is what is good for you. I, no. The Christian vision of God is one that says, I do want your lowly body to be transformed one day. That is the hope. But what the prosperity teaching gets wrong that is the fatal flaw that distorts the rest of the picture is it gets the timing wrong. Not the heart of God, but the, the when it will occur. And so they say, it all needs to happen now. And if it doesn't happen now, then you don't have enough faith. Or maybe there's sin in your life. Or maybe, you know, you haven't prayed the right prayer or confessed the right thing. Maybe you quoted three scriptures instead of four scriptures. And maybe you didn't do this or that, you know. But remember, that's the kind of religion that puts the yoke back on you. And that's what makes it become this false gospel. But when you put the yoke on Jesus, and you say, Jesus, you are the deliverer. You are the savior. Then all of a sudden we see the promise of Jesus is that he who began the good work will complete it. He who was raised from the dead will one day transform our lowly body. Do I look forward to a body that doesn't have backaches and won't be balding and aging? Yes, I do. And one day my lowly breaking down body will be transformed. But this is the hope of our resurrection. This is the promise of our resurrection. There's no doubt that Paul's able to be content not because he's learned to call evil good. Not because Paul's able to look at hardship in his life and say, oh, that's not really hardship. That's awesome stuff. No. You don't have to. This is not. Sometimes people accuse Christians of playing Word games, mind games, like, oh, you just call bad things good things. It's not what Paul's doing. He's saying, I've learned to be content because I know the end of the story. I know the promise that Christ has given us that he'll complete the work, that he'll transform our bodies. That one day heaven and earth will be made new. The secret to being content has to do with Christ's presence and Christ's power and Christ's promise. If we were to say it in one phrase, I'd say it like this. The secret of being content is being in communion with Jesus. Amen. It's being in communion with Jesus. In communion with Jesus, I'm reminded of his presence right here. In communion with Jesus, I'm trusting in his power right here. In communion with Jesus, I'm holding on to his promise Amen. even right now. In communion with Jesus. I think Paul's prayer for us would be that in all of our understanding, 
Remember, he said, the goal here is that you really know Jesus, that you really know him. Don't settle for abstractions and checklists and, yeah, yeah, I got the points about what Christians believe. Don't settle for Christian worldviews. Don't settle for a Christian lifestyle, whatever any of that really means. Don't settle for anything but Jesus himself. That is the goal. The secret of being content is being in communion with Christ himself. Just, I can't be taken, this can't be taken away. This can't, this can't be lost. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. One commentator says the way to translate verse 13 is that in union with the one, to be in union with the one who continually infuses me with strength. I love that. To be in union with the one who continually infuses me with strength. It's like a light bulb in a lamp. On its own, you're like, it's not exactly self-sufficient, but all the stuff is there. But once it's connected to, it's in union with electricity, if you will, then it's going to be infused with strength. And there comes the lights. Where is the light in your life? It comes from being in union with the source who makes it all light up, who makes it all worth. Is it self-sufficiency? No, it's really union with Christ, the all-sufficient one. And this is why at the end of it all, the final word for us of this whole series is that complete joy is found in Jesus. In Jesus. Now that doesn't cheapen or take away from the pain or the loneliness that you're feeling. This is, for many people, a difficult week. You'll go into the holidays, for some of you, without your kids or without a spouse maybe without friends or family. Maybe you'll be thinking about a trauma or a loss. And there's no sprinkling Christian fairy dust and be like, oh, you're fine. But there is a way of offering our whole selves to Jesus, of saying, Jesus, here is my sadness and my longing and my hope, and Jesus, here is my brokenness, and here is my joy, here's all of it. And Jesus, here is my whole self. Here's my life, Lord. It's the only one I've got. And so Jesus, I'm offering you my whole self to be in union and communion with you. And Jesus says, come on, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I am myself, Jesus says, the treasure that neither moth can decay or rust can, rust can steal. I am the treasure that will never be taken away from you. So bring me your whole self, and I will give you my whole self. And in that, you will find complete joy. Amen? Amen. This morning, we're going to come to the table of the Lord together, and as we come and to the Lord's table, we always begin with the prayer of confession. And confession is freedom because it's a way of saying, I can't take this yoke of performance. I don't want to be the source of my enoughness. 
I don't want to prove that I can do it. I, I really can't. And so confession is a way of saying, uh, Jesus, I don't got this. I am not enough. And Jesus says to you, and I am enough. It's the reason why even when we come to the communion table, we come with empty hands. We come with empty hands. And Christ says, I know. He doesn't say, that's all you got. He says, I know. <laughs> that's why I gave my body to be your bread. Hallelujah. That's why I gave my blood to be your cup. I know you're not enough. Stop pretending. I am more than enough for you. And in me, Jesus says, you can endure all things.